ਪੂਰੀ ਵਿਸ਼ਨਾ ਗੁਰੂ ਪਰੰਪਰਾ ਕੀ ਜਾਏ ਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਨੇ ਐਵਰੀਵਨ ਥੈਂਕ ਯੂ ਫॉर ਕਮਿੰਗ ਆ ਵਾਸਨਟ ਵੇਅਰ ਵੇਅਰ ਐਟ ਦ ਟਾਈਮ ਬਟ ਦੀ ਕਾਈਂਡ ਸਪਾਂਸਰ ਆਫ ਥੀਸ ਮੰਥਲੀ ਇਵੈਂਟਸ ਇਸ ਆਲਵੇਸ ਆਸਕਿੰਗ ਮੀ ਇਨ ਐਡਵਾਂਸ ਫॉर ਸਮ ਟਾਈਟਲਸ ਫॉर ਦ ਟਾਕਸ ਦੈਟ ਆਈ ਵਿਲ ਗਿਵ last saturday of each month and i don't work so much in that way as to have them on the tip of my tongue but she always wants them months in advance so something comes to mind and i give her a topic um but um as i say wasn't uh, thinking that far ahead and um to realize that this is the weekend of Mahadev Shiv Shivaratri the night of Shiva and then maybe people have different calendars calculated in different ways which may have it fall for some tonight or some tomorrow night i could have given a good talk on that topic <laughs> very interesting talk but um anyway we have a talk that topic that was given from the top of my head for this month and um I think we titled it uh, beyond birth and death and uh she wanted another one so for the next month so then I titled the next one sacred aesthetic rapture and the two kind of go together you have to kind of get beyond birth and death to experience what I mean by sacred aesthetic rapture So in speaking about beyond birth and death the night briefly as I will I only want to speak to the conviction that there there is something beyond birth and death what exactly that might hold for us what what possibilities lie there and there are a number and how that can ascend as high as the concept of sacred aesthetic rapture a big topic and we'll discuss that next month so attendance may be a little down also because of other festivities centered around the shivratri this weekend in you know this is quite a yogic community here in santa rosa sebastopol and all so any rate beyond birth and death this is our topic so that is of course very uh that is our life life in between birth and death in many respects and many people think of it as being that and and nothing more and that there's first of all nothing beyond death and that um and that birth does not uh, follow death but death follows birth so the yogic tradition has a little bit of a different outlook on that of course as many of you I'm sure are well aware in the world it's uh, common that uh, birth is celebrated and death is mourned as if they are polar opposites but the yoga tradition doesn't look at it like that gita for example simbad bhagavad gita uh, the great uh, discourse of shri krishna there it is mentioned whoever is born death is certain whoever dies birth is certain So these two are closely uh, related they're not really the opposites if if you will that people think of them as 
again as one birth to celebrate and to death to mourn. The life that is contained within birth and death in the Hindu tradition, of course, is called samsara. Samsara comes, it means sang and sarati. It comes from this, this idea, samsarati. Sarati means to flow, to flow like the flow of the river. And sam means together. So many things can be drawn from that, but in one sense it means that these two, birth and death, they, they flow together. And they are not so different as they appear on the surface. And in much as they flow together, birth and death, birth means death, and death means birth, and and it goes on like this. That it, that the term samsara implies a kind of a kind of wandering, a kind of aimless, if you will, wandering, a kind of uh, circular affair. It's often depicted graphically as the wheel of life, or the circle of life. The, Samsara, going round and round in a circle, so circling between birth and death. And, and really thinking that they're different in one sense and thinking that, um, that um, the movement within birth and death can be progressive in some way. But um, this is kind of the confusion of samsara. It's really an aimless kind of wandering because, um, as I say, walking in a circle, you don't really go anywhere. And so without bringing an end to birth and death, without going beyond birth and death, then one, from the vantage point of the the yoga tradition, has gone nowhere. No matter how, how high we may appear to fly in the sky of our material pursuits, an effort to be somebody, to be recognized, to be known, to be happy, to be secure, powerful, remembered, and so forth. There's an English poet, oh, forgive me that I can't remember his name, but he had a nice poem, something to the effect that, what did he say? The pomp, the power? Most of heraldry, all but lead to the grave. All leads but to the grave. Grave diggers we are. Hmm? This is the idea from the yoga perspective that in our efforts to make progress materially we are really just digging our own grave. It sounds a little bit pessimistic, <laughs> no doubt, but actually if we look deeply it is filled with great optimism because it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop by, that. I mean to say, analyzing the material world in the way that it does that makes this life in between birth and death and the perspective on life, the vantage point from which we view life that leads us to believe that that's all there is in between birth and death. The kind of pessimistic uh, way in which the yoga tradition describes that type of life and the pursuit of happiness within the confines of birth and death if we look deeply at it, as I say it's not pessimistic because it doesn't stop there. It goes on to tell us, indeed, that there is there's something beyond that. There's, there's something beyond that misperception, if you will, that, that birth is that much different than death and that death is, uh, doesn't give rise to birth and, and so on and so forth. Of course, one might question, fair enough, that uh, the Gita's statement that death leads to birth birth 
is the beginning of death, and death is the beginning of birth. That's fair enough, I suppose, to, to question that, to doubt that. And in response, we can say that, first of all, many great, uh, great persons, great in, in many respects, great in not only their uh, learning and ability to speak thoughtfully and philosophically about, about life in a way that's compelling, but great in terms of their example and the way that they led their life have attested to their own experience that in this world, for one who has not unlocked the secret, that they're trapped within a cycle of birth and death, and death does indeed lead to birth, and birth to death, and, and so on. So we can, we can draw upon their, their wisdom, and, and this is not an uncommon thing. In other words, we do this all the time. We operate in the world based on something that uh, we accept from persons who we consider authorities in a particular field that speak about something that we personally don't have experience of. But because we accept them as authorities, we're confident then that what they say about a particular issue is, is acceptable and we can go forward based on that, that premise. So this is not an uncommon thing. It's not unreasonable. It's not a departure from reason to have faith, that is, in a sense, in the uh, words of, of great persons who speak like this. And there's a literary tradition also, scriptural tradition, sacred texts, the Gita, for example. These are old books, of course, but, but they're living. And um, certainly, while they may be cluttered in one sense with um, that they, they spoke at a particular time to a particular society and, and culture and so forth and some of and if you ever do that like I'm speaking to you now and it might sound real good but 500,000 years from now <laughs> some of the points I make may be valuable but the way I make them and the examples I use and so forth may not seem as relevant so while that may come along with some of the sacred texts spoken as they are at different times uh, nonetheless um, the, the essential points that they're making are are relevant and alive as much today as they were thousands of years ago. Important books, certainly, and the way they came about and so forth, and to whom they, they were penned, and all these are important considerations. So we find great persons have spoken about this idea that death leads to rebirth. There is a, a great and very voluminous body of, of literature that uh, speaks very considerably about this and and gives a compelling philosophy that uh, support the idea and so forth. So it's reasonable to suggest that um, hearing from such texts and from such persons and having regard for them in faith and so forth is, is enough, but it might not be enough for us. So we shall maybe move then to the court of experience to try to find evidence that would be more compelling perhaps and what somebody said, what some book said. If I don't know the person, I'm not acquainted with the book. I may not even be inspired to read it or hear from that person. What is my own experience? This is more compelling for all of us. This is closer to home. Right? The final kind of evidence really is experience. That's a whole other discussion. But I don't think too many of you will argue 
with that. So to go to the court then of experience, what do we find? Well, in our own experience we find that, for example, that which makes up any particular manifestation of matter, any particular arrangement of the basic stuff of the world, is non-enduring, at least in terms of that particular arrangement, but the, the makeup, the elements, they endure and thus all forms, all manifestations of matter are in a constant state of uh, transformation. We have, for example, at our monastery in Mendocino County, just a bit up north of you, we've harvested some trees that needed to, needed to be harvested for the health of the forest. And we've, we've gathered some, um, some old logs from the forest floor that were left from persons who harvested it in, in an inappropriate way years and years ago. And, and so from these trees, then, we are making a temple. So the wood, the, the basic body of the tree, that will be transformed it will disappear, it will die, if you will. But it will be born again, the same material, in the form of a temple. It's getting a new birth. Or some of the wood will be burned. We have a wood stove to heat everything, or a number of the, of the buildings. It will be burned, and then ashes will come. And, you know, in some of the old traditions, the ashes are used to keep the body warm. And not in our tradition, we don't dress in ashes up there, but uh, we use them to clean the brass um, bell for ringing for the ritual and the altar and uh, other such things. So my point here is that, as I say, these, all these material manifestations, they're all in a constant state of flux and transformation, and nothing goes anywhere, but everything just transforms. And in a sense, everything is, dies and is is born again in a new form. That's our experience. So we shouldn't think that our own material body, another arrangement of the same basic stuff, will be any different, that it will transform. And they say even, I think, maybe that Western uh, tradition, the Bible says from dust to dust or something, ashes to ashes. Anyway, so you come from it, you go to it. So... Our death is, um, if, if we're just speaking about matter, which is our experience of matter, that matter is in a constant state of transformation. So to say that it's, even if we take it metaphorically, death turns into birth and birth turns into death and, and so on, it's somewhat within our experience as to how matter is moving. So it's not too much of a stretch. but. We mentioned experience. We thought, let us go to the court of experience and bring evidence to bear. This is a big word. Experience. Experience. Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher from times gone by in Europe, said that experience is the uh, lawmaker of nature. Spinoza said something also interesting. He said, a philosopher from Europe, he said that uh, there's no meaning to experience without consciousness. 
In fact, what both of these people are saying is very similar to the Hindu tradition, yogic tradition. What is that? We wanted to talk about experience. And what is our experience? Our main experience, if we think deeply, is what? Is that we experience. And that's different from matter, which is experienced. I've often said, if matter mattered independently of consciousness, who would know? Who would care? You understand? Consciousness is the knower, the experiencer, the carer. So the main experience, if we think about it, that we have in life is that we experience. Now some people like to think that matter and consciousness are the same. They're not different. I don't know why. They appear very different. They appear to be quite opposite in their character and their, in their um, makeup. Consciousness is life. Experience is life. You cannot divide experience from consciousness, consciousness from experience. We are experiencers. Matter is experienced. And we lend our life, in a sense, to matter, and matter appears to take on life. The body, for example, appears to be alive because, because of consciousness. So while matter is transforming, and this body is being born and dying, and those elements are appearing in some other way, what is the driver behind the machine of this matter? What is driving the, the transformation? That is consciousness. Consciousness is driving the transformation. Now, if we are a unit of consciousness, I mean an experiencer, a living thing, and we dwell in this plane of matter, where matter is constantly in flux, and we are actually causing that constant transformation. We're like, like turning it on, turning on the machine of matter. Then it stands to reason that if we remain attached to this plane of experience, then what happens to us is that this matter keeps transforming around us. And so now it's formed in a particular way around us, this particular body. We've driven matter, perhaps blindly, but nonetheless, we've had the foot on the gas. The machine requires a driver. And so it's, it's reacted in a particular way and formed around us, and we've attached ourselves to this vehicle. We've identified with it. But it has a, a life, so to speak, uh, uh, and it will die. <laughs> and what will happen? That matter will again form around us in a particular way. This is the idea. So if we are to go, as I say, to the court of experience, of our own experience, this we should surface with, that we are an experiencer. The more we think about it, what is my experience? Besides what the books say and saints and sadhus and yogis and so forth, we should come up with this, that I experience. I am consciousness, not matter. So this then gives us a glimpse into the idea that beyond birth and death, which is but the transformation of matter that is constantly going on, 
there's a life. The experience of death, just the whole idea that death could be experienced. What does it tell us? That it's a particular experience of consciousness. It's been described by consciousness as such. It's been given a name, it's been talked about, it's been conceived of. So the whole of the experience is a particular conception. And we are doing the conceiving. We should try, and this is what yoga course is about, is to distinguish ourselves and bring dignity to ourselves thereby from this constant, uh, this machine of, of material nature. This would bring dignity to, to humanity because when we don't, to the extent that we don't, our life is really rather embarrassing. We find ourselves in very embarrassing situations, very unbecoming situations. Attachment is very unbecoming. And detachment is very beautiful. It doesn't sound always so beautiful on its face, and it's misunderstood often as well. Oh, you should be detached. So I will detach from my friends, from my family, from my identity as, as a member of a particular nation and so forth, and I'll become a cold, cold-hearted person. No, actually detachment is about love. It's about being warm, about loving people. And attachment is not about loving people at all. Attachment is about need, perceived need, that we have as a result of not being full in ourselves. It's about using others and things for a perceived necessity that doesn't exist ultimately. Attachment is about exploitation. Attachment is about not seeing things for what they are, because if we are too attached to something, we cannot look at it objectively. Mother called, it said, her blind son Padmalochan. Padmalochan means lotus-eyed. It's a way of saying, oh, he has such beautiful eyes. Do you understand? Who's blind? The mother is blind. And what is the blinding force? Her attachment, her affection. So this attachment is, is really, it doesn't allow, afford us an accurate perception of what we're involved in. And so therefore we act inordinately as a result of that. And we abuse the world, we abuse one another. And we confuse attachment with affection, with love. When in fact it involves not seeing a thing or a person, an entity, for what they are. And without seeing that, to what extent can we love? Then, you know, if you find a part, let's say you find a computer chip on the floor, what value is it to you if you don't know where to put it in the computer? You might do something with it, maybe wear it as a medallion. <laughs> you could do all kinds of things with it. But if you put it in the computer in the right place, so then so many wonderful things can come from that. So to understand a thing, the world, matter, for example, in relation to its source, in relation to the consciousness that drives it, and so forth, well, this is to see the world in a very different way. So many different perceptions are there. I've given an example before. Yeah. Tiger sees a young girl, loves her, 
If a tiger sees a young girl in the forest, he will lick his lips. Beautiful, wonderful, thinking she's going to taste really good. If a young boy sees a young girl, he will also love her. He will think of it in a different way. If a yogi sees a young girl, he will also love her. But all of them are seeing a very different thing. Tigers seeing a meal. Young boys seeing some companionship. Yogis seeing everything that's there to be seen and responds accordingly. He's detached. And, of course, yoga is a method for arriving at that, something that we don't just think about and decide, oh, I'm detached, and pretend and fool ourselves that, that we are, that I live in the world and I'm not attached to anything. I hear people say it sometimes. You grab these catchphrases from the books or from the talks of saintly persons and we just then pull them out when they're convenient and we think ourselves into detachment and love and enlightenment. It doesn't work like that. That's why yoga is really quite a discipline and um, not so easy and a challenge, really. Yoga presents us with the greatest uh, challenge to, to rise to the occasion of and really be all that you that you are. So detachment, no, it's not a mean thing. It's really about love. You can be detached from family, friends, and, and so many things, and love them still. Why not? It means not abusing them, not in the suffering from the false perception that you need them, that, this, whatever it may be, in order to be complete, in order to be full. When you realize that through proper detachment, you become full, you become happy, and you, in, a, in a person who is full and full of joy, then what is their function in life? It's only to give, and this is what loving is about. So really, detachment is not all about being hard-hearted. It's about being soft-hearted. It's misunderstood. And this is, as I say, what much of what the yoga culture leads us to, if with a good teacher, in a natural way, not in an artificial way. Through discipline, through the culture of sacred wisdom, theoretical wisdom, its application, the discipline of yoga, over a long time we can arrive at this. It's important, I think, to understand it theoretically so that we know what it's about and what we're after in that. And this is the idea that by such yoga discipline we can separate ourselves from the particular combination of matter that we've identified with as ourself. Man, woman, black, white, American, Indian, young, old, this may be the conception. These are very basic themes I'm talking about tonight. Very basic themes of the yoga worldview. Very important to have in place. As I said, next month we'll talk about sacred aesthetic rapture. In our estimation in my lineage, the highest ideal that one can arrive at beyond birth and death, but to get beyond that threshold of birth and death, where all possibility lies. So, within birth and death, what possibilities lie for us? It's like this, to give an example. Somebody lives in a village in India, in a very rural area of India. To get a passport is practically impossible. 
We live in America. We can't even imagine that. You can just go and get a passport tomorrow, and you can go to any country you want, practically. If that young village lady should get a passport somehow, then to get a visa to come to this country, that's practically impossible. So difficult for a village person. And they're thinking, some of them, if I could get a passport, if I could get a visa, if I could go to America, what possibilities there would be for me in life. I cannot imagine. My mind explodes to think of the possibilities. And in a sense, it's true what possibilities we have in comparison to living in a little rural village of India. No television, no, no information, no... Anyway, you know, we live here. We have many possibilities. And all those possibilities put together millions of times are nothing in comparison to what lies beyond the misperception that life fits within birth and death. It's such a small thing. If we combine these experiences of the sense of smell with the experience of the sense of hearing, with the forms that are perceivable by the sense of sight, with the things that are that you can touch. I mean, this is what our life is about. Feeling through what? Through seeing, through hearing, through smelling, through tasting, through touching, with the motor senses that we have, walking, through the movements of our arms, procreation. All these things, these are going on in all species of life. Usually, in every species of life, one of these sensual uh, mediums for experiencing are more prominent than the others. Like the arms of the birds, they're real prominent. They can fly in the sky and so forth. And it, it's those, some of those birds have a very keen sense of sight, like those hawks, and they can spot from a long distance away a little mouse and, and swoop down and pick him up. And So each of these species, one of these senses is prominent. In our human form, then all the senses are prominent. So there's an illusion that the experience is un unlimited, but really we've already experienced, this is the idea, in the water, on the land, without having died before. We've died a million times, eight million times, eight million or more, to arrive at a human birth, rare birth. This is a rare birth. There are very few humans in comparison to other species. I could count, if I could, I suppose I could, with a microscope, how many microscopic living entities are on the end of my finger. How many do you think they would be? More than the humans on Earth, by many times over. How many fingers we have? do I have? How many do you have? <laughs> and so, and beyond. How many living beings are there in this room? Now we have human body. How if we arrived at this, some type of evolution, some kind of evolution, it's progress. But how we use it, that will determine whether our, whether we'll progress, really at all. It's an opportunity to progress beyond birth and death. That's what it affords us, this human life, because these things can be discussed, and not only discussed, they can be applied. That's a challenge. It's a big enough challenge to discuss it, 
to get people to come to such a such a boring discussion as this. <laughs> but to put it in practice, so much more challenge. We can nod our head, we can like it, identify. We need good company for that. It'll push us to nudge us to go forward, do something about it. Usual wealth of human birth. We've got it after many, many births and many, many deaths. We've arrived here. Don't die again just to take birth again, just to do what? In other words, there's a unique opportunity that is, we've arrived at here. Human consciousness. We can know that we are. In all these other forms of life, that consciousness has not evolved to the point of knowing that it exists. Now, we know that. Shall we just do what they do who don't know that they exist? What do they do? They gratify the senses. They bring themselves through the medium of their senses in touch with material, whatever, objects, things. In the pursuit of what? Happiness. You look at an insect and you think, well, you know, what is his life about? Same as yours. It's about happiness. But do you have a greater facility for achieving that happiness than the insect? We think, yes, we do. But if in fact we only do the same things that the insect does, my guru once used to say, he used to say sometimes, hmm, dog is walking on four legs and barking. Man is driving on four wheels and blowing his horn. What is the difference? <laughs> there should be a difference. This is the point. A categorical difference in our pursuit of happiness in human life than that pursuit of the same thing that's possible in other forms of life. And to the extent that we, we make that categorical change in our pursuit by looking within instead of without, again, it lies within. We know. If we look to the court of experience to determine what life's about, we know that, hey, I'm, I am experience. I'm an experience. I am consciousness. So what kind of experience this is my point. And possibility lies in consciousness in comparison to matter. In all of the forms of life, the opportunity to pursue the possibilities of experience, as much as experience is synonymous with consciousness, they cannot be separated. In all of the forms of life, what, 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 uh, how much happiness can be derived? And now we've got this opportunity, how it should be used. It should be used to go beyond the limits of birth and death, the illusion that birth is worth celebrating and death is worth mourning. This is just a particular reading of the world gathered through the senses. We have to look in a different way. Again, these senses are just mediums for contacting the world. We, we taste, we touch, we see, we, we hear sounds, messages are relayed to the mind, the mind makes a determination. That's good, that's bad, that's happy, that's sad. This is hot, this is cold. And then all that we live in this little world of goods and bads, happies and sads, and they're different from everybody else's. What's good for you is bad for me, what's happy for you is sad for me. So we, we can't quite come together <laughs> on anything. Only, you know, somewhat when we agree. But what are these determinations, good, bad, happy, sad? They're only relative to our senses and minds. What are we in all of this? 
Is it good or is it bad? Is it happy or is it sad? Is it hot in here or is it cold in here? What is the determining factor? Your senses, my senses? Is there another way of knowing what it is? What experience is? What it means to be an experiencer? All this, this is the opportunity that human life affords us. So we think, like, something like this, like that Indian village girl. She thinks, if I could come to America, so many possibilities. You should think, oh, I'm like an Indian village girl. If I could only go beyond birth and death, what, my experience, what possibilities there would be. For what? For experiencing what we're all after. Happiness. That's all. One thing. We're all moving for that. So your life beyond death and beyond birth, and as much as birth and death are but a, the constant transformation of matter, and that life beyond it is you and me. And we have to identify that fact. We have to experience that. Then, so many possibilities. Now, these possibilities, I want to talk about that next week or next month, these possibilities are nicely explained in a beautiful book that in one sense is the sequel to a book I cited earlier, Bhagavad Gita, that is called the Srimad Bhagavat. It's a sequel in a sense that the Gita was spoken by Krishna and the Bhagavat is about the life of Krishna. The Gita was spoken by Krishna, so it's about part of his life where he spoke the Gita at a certain time to his friend Arjuna. But the Bhagavad is about his whole life. That's what it's about in one sense. But the storyline very briefly goes something like this. An emperor, the emperor of India, was cursed to die in seven days. It's about death. The book's about death. Oh, it has such a happy ending. Hmm? The book is about understanding death. And oh, the understanding is so happy. What is that thing that people are mourning? If you understand it properly, what it is, then the misperception of what it is, which causes one to mourn, disappears. And the possibility that comes before you then, oh, is so immense, so inviting, so encouraging. So the emperor was cursed to die in seven days. In one sense, the message is this. We all have seven days to live. Now, if you knew you only had seven days to live, what would you do? You'd think about all your attachments <laughs> and how you could possibly uh, stay attached to them or, or whatever, maybe. Not a good idea. That means we're not leading our life very thoughtfully. If you knew you had seven days to live, what would you do? Oh, you would try to do important things. The message is you have seven days. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. One of those days you will die. One Saturday, one Sunday morning, one Friday night, where will you be? One Saturday afternoon. The emperor realized this. Seven days, he was cursed to die. It's a message to us. Like I say, we have seven days. One of these days. And the likelihood it will be next Monday rather than last Monday, is surer each week. <laughs> each morning you wake up, the chance is better that day than the previous day. Now, leading your life like this, again, it might sound a little odd, but one who does, 
oh, they are starting to glimpse the prospect of life beyond birth and death. So the emperor, what did he do? He went to the bank of the sacred Ganges River and he began to fast. And he wanted advice. The emperor wanted advice. What to do? What is the best thing one can do in life in general and particularly at the time of death? This was his question. And it's a long answer. About 18,000 poetic verses the answer comes in. The answer comes by telling a story and inside the story is another story and inside that is another story and another question and answer and it goes on like this for 18,000 poetic verses. And the culmination doesn't come particularly at the end. It comes, it's about 99 chapters or something like that. It comes in, in about the 30, 29, 30, 31, 32, about the 32nd chapter, something like that. And then it has it the aftermath, so to speak, reiterating in so many ways what the answer is. We'll have to talk about that next <laughs> month. Uh, but it's, it's the... <laughs> It's the romantic life of Krishna, actually, the transcendental romantic life of, of Krishna and those milkmaidens that he consorts with. It's very hard to understand how this could be the answer, but it's found there. And this is, again, something about sacred aesthetic rapture and how, how this, reasonably speaking, objectively speaking, there's distinct possibility that this could be the highest reach of experience in transcendence or in life beyond birth and death. And um, very touching and romantic uh, story. It's so meaningful, so profound. Basically, it teaches us how to, how to solve the problem of death through detachment and how to arrive at that attachment and then what, again, what possibility lies ahead for us, for such a person. So, I don't want to speak too long. This is a very rudimentary uh, discussion on very basic principles. I hope that you could uh, appreciate to some extent. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time now, 35 years or so, and I feel refreshed even talking about the basic topics. So I hope that you will also, although many of the things you may have heard before, are there any questions or comments? Yes, sir. What, what sort of person was that emperor inquiring from? Well, that's an interesting point, too. He was inquiring from a, He ended up inquiring from a 16-year-old boy who was wandering naked through the villages and forests, and people were making fun of him and throwing things at him, and children, thinking that he was dumb and deaf and, and so forth. And then he spoke eloquently this poetry of, of the Bhagavad, it also speaks to us that uh, we can learn from anyone <laughs> if we listen carefully. So that's part of the story. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. What else? Any other comments, thoughts? Any help for me? Any advice? I mean it. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> yes. What you describe is a pretty philosophical approach to life, and sometimes it's hard for us to remain philosophical on a steady basis, and then also in general, uh, people often are 
required to work a lot and have other respons or responsibilities in general and may not be so philosophically inclined, how can we take advantage of yoga teachings and philosophy like that in a simple way for everyday folks? Because you're not an emperor. <laughs> but they're more busy than you. They've got more to do than you. More important things to think about. Well, I suppose, you know, there's a, be there's a beginning to everything, and um, it is a long haul, and the big... Uh, I mean, this is the big picture. There's no doubt about that. And to think about it is big enough in one sense, but not quite. You have to, you have to live in it, and that is, as I say, a big, big challenge. I think that, uh, to me, the important thing is to, if I might say, attach oneself. I think that it's important to attach oneself, if you can, to someone who's living in that big picture. And that will keep us kind of on a rope, on a leash, if you will, in our wandering in samsara. Samsara is kind of, like I said, an aimless wandering. That will curtail our, considerably, our movements that would perpetuate the wandering aimlessly. Such persons are very generous, and so they can we check in with them, if we're attached to them, and we check in with them, and they're, and they're thinking about us, then if we're confident that they're thinking about us, that they're concerned, that I'm doing something that, that someone of spiritual consequence would cause them to think about me, something like that, that, that would, be, would be good for me. Such persons, as they are, are generous, so they can also find a way to make our meaningless interests meaningful. If someone comes to a great teacher and as a student, however inept student may be, I mean this is entry level, everybody can enter. So there are all kinds. Anyone who catches the idea, especially in the school of bhakti, it's open for anyone. And so we do get a lot of crazy people. Um, <laughs> But what can you say? I mean, bhakti has attracted them, so something going on there that's, in, that's important. We can't complain, after all. It's not about justice, it's kind of about grace, and we can't call for justice when we ourselves are looking for grace. Mercy transcends justice. So a lot of, a lot of crazy people get involved. Um, but at any rate, if you do get involved and you attach yourself to, to a real experiencer, teacher, then that person, he or she, can find a way, as I say, to make your meaningless life more meaningful, the more you keep in touch with them. If someone says, oh, Dave, I want to go to, I don't know, Alaska, and, you know, just climb the mountain there somewhere, I mean, I just got to get out of here. You know, then he might find, or she might find something for you to do along. Well, that's good, do that. And while you're there, if you could, you know, deliver this note to so-and-so, or you could do this, or pick it up for me, or something like that. They find a way, these persons, to connect us, to connect our wanderings, however wild they may be. This is their generosity and their kind of universal way of looking at things. That They can find a way to make meaningless 
ventures meaningful, to make them centered in some small way. And gradually you'll build upon that, invisibly. Real life will be built upon that. So that eventually you'll become more disposed to thinking about what you do and where you go and why, and and it will be purposeful and, and so forth. So I think that this is the most important thing to, as much as we talk about detachment, to be attached, this is the most important thing, to the right thing and to a person who really uh, lives this kind of life, and to check in with that person, to have that kind of relationship with such a person. This is important. This will keep us somehow uh, centered and somehow, uh, like I say, on a shorter leash, one that, you know, you have to give some room, but not enough to hang yourself, something like that. That has been the most important thing for me in my life, so... I share it with you. What else? What are you attached to? You. That's why I'm here. I'm attached to you. To helping you understand these things. That is my passion. My passion is as much as I've understood, it is filling me with uh, some almost necessity to celebrate that. And that means to share it. And so I'm, I'm attached to that. And because you are interested in, in that, I'm attached to you. And I think that if I share that with you, then as I see you functioning in relation to that, I'll also learn something about that thing, because it's vast. And there's, there's no end. We're students always, forever. So if I get a very valuable thing that's so valuable that I cannot fully even take advantage of it, then my inclination is to share it with others and see how they take advantage of it, and I will learn from them how to take advantage of it. That's my. <laughs> is that how I think about it? That's a nice question. I appreciate that. Yes. When you get beyond the cycle of birth and death, hmm. where are you and who are you? Yeah, well, that's a big, big topic. It's often uh, spoken of more in terms of what you're not and where you're not than who you are and where you are. But I do have much to say about it in a positive way, who you are and where you are, but it's worth speaking about what you're not and where you're not at some length because that's where we are at present. And to, you know, to look down at it and see it for what it is is helpful for going beyond it. So, of course, we're not, it's not something we could speak about in a linear way or in terms of miles and how far out in the universe you are and where you turn left or right and, and so forth. But let me put it like this. You're not in the center and you know it. You're not in the center and you know it. That means that at the present we tend to think ourselves as the center. Whether consciously or unconsciously, we act in such a way as if we are the center as if things are really revolving around us. If we want people to agree with us, our ideas. We want people to live within our world of our mind, of our happies and sads and goods and bads, even though it's not making us very happy. And even though it's very uncomfortable for us at times, we illogically, unreasonably insist that other people should be happy within it. So this is kind of a, an experience in which we think 
we act as if we're the center. And it's very uncomfortable, because we're not. Ontologically speaking, we're not the center. We're on the circumference, in a sense. We're connected to the center, but we're not the center. And so the comfort, false comfort, of thinking oneself the center is that one is allowed to feel that oneself is important and big and and so forth. It's a false comfort, because we are not that big, and in the whole universal and beyond scheme of things, we're pretty insignificant, really. We're pretty tiny, very, very, very tiny, infinitesimal. So that doesn't sound really good, but when we come out from beyond this small world of the mind that allows us to think we're the center, we see how small we are. The closer the finite gets to the infinite, the more it readily realizes and experiences what it means to be finite. Oh my God, I'm so insignificant. But there's another thing that happens. When we come out from this false idea of being the center and out of this small world of the mind, we realize how small we are. The comforting factor in that plane of experience is that the one who is actually the center we come in touch with. And he's friendly to our surprise, affectionate, friendly. There's a nice statement in the Gita. It says, Bhuktaram Jagatatasam Sarvaloko Maheshparam. Krishna speaking. He says, Bhuktaram Jagatapasam. I'm the enjoyer of everything. Everything is meant for my enjoyment. And we think, well, everything? <laughs> and then he says, Sarvaloka Maheshwaram. I, I control everything. There's nothing I can control. You control everything. You're the enjoyer of everything. Sounds a little stifling. But then he says, think about it, accept it. And Suridam Sarvabhutanam. There's the next line. He says, for those who realize that, I'm friendly towards them. Those who don't realize that, I appear unfriendly. In other words, the environment appears unfriendly to those who act as if they're the center. Because they're not, we seem to be going upstream. There's a struggle. We're trying to establish ourselves as the center. We're not. So it seems like the world's kind of against us. The environment's unfriendly. I've got to... Uh, but Krishna says, I'm the environment and I'm really quite friendly to you, but you're not friendly to me. <laughs> you're trying to take my position. And it's just not possible. It's a folly. Try to understand that. But then you see, I I'm, I'm, have nothing against you. By any means, I'm affectionate towards you. So we come in contact with actually the source of affection. And this is then to be discussed next month. What, what is that source of affection? What, is that, what does Krishna mean ontologically, philosophically, theologically? What does that word mean? What is the, 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 it really means, Krishna means irresistible, all attractive, irresistible. So to come in touch with it, that which is irresistibly beautiful and affectionate to, to, unlimitedly, it's a, to be in contact with that, just to bathe in, in, in such um, beatitude, this is, uh, this is the idea. Mm. And there's a whole, there's a life there, there's a life. We shouldn't think that means that beyond birth and death, there's no life. If we think there's life beyond birth and death, then 
there must be some similarity to that life and this life in as much as they're both called life. It's a very interesting point. <laughs> because we know what it means to be alive, to live, materially speaking. So there must be some similarity between life beyond birth and death and life. The only difference is it's like it's like the same building, but the, the foundation's been changed. We jacked up the building, took out the faulty foundation, put the right foundation in. So there's a life. And we call this... I'll use two Sanskrit words to describe the difference. One is karma, and one is lila. You see, karma implies life, action. But the action that is under the influence of karma is, is reactionary and binding. The movement within the realm of karma is like you don't get anywhere. It's like borrowing money from the bank. If you borrow money from the bank, do you have more money or less money? There's an appearance that you have more money, but in reality you have less money because now you owe money plus interest, <laughs> compounded interest. And, and I don't know if you get them, but I get all these emails. Borrow money, get a mortgage. You know. <laughs> You can have more money now if you just borrow more money. If you owe us more, you'll have... So that's in a kind of an illusion to give an example. So karma is like that. It's movement from which I see myself as the center, but it's like movement in quicksand. You know, you just keep going down, keep going down. Now what we're talking about here is like Tarzan, you know, comes in and says, don't move. He says, swinging in on rope, says, don't move. Hold on. This is the idea of yoga. From up, some generosity comes down to take us up. Grace, this is bhakti, love, affection, from that side. And so then the movement, it, life's about movement, doing things, but not a movement that is, that is backward, that is uh, only apparent. You know, you're moving when you walk up the down escalator. <laughs> You're moving, but you're not going anywhere. This is like karma. It looks like you're moving. I'm moving, but if you don't move fast enough, you find yourself back at the bottom of the stairs. And, you know, so, uh, that kind of movement. No, lila, now. Lila means, karma means work. There's another translation. What does lila mean? Play. Work is life. Play is life. In reality, we work to play. That's why we work, so we can play. Because play requires some power. If you have some power, you can play. If you have some money in the bank, you can take a vacation. That's power. We work to play. But working to play, to work to play, this is material life. You don't really get to play. You're always haunted by having to go back to work. <laughs> You know, you're on your vacation, and what time is it? What day is it, by the way? And when is that for? When do we have to get back to the office? And it's just, you know, it's, it's, as soon as it begins, the time is ticking away. You know, you, we, all, we all live here, so. So it's not really play at all. So Leela is play. So beyond birth and death, there's a possibility for Leela. That means to enter into the play of God, to be a player in the eternal drama. And... Um, and the, the basic self, you wanted to know, where and who? Where am I? 
and who am I beyond birth and death? So where you are is not in the plane where movement is reactionary, where movement really takes you nowhere, just burdens you, encumbers you more and more. You're not in that place. You're in a place where, where movement is not binding, and there is no work. It's all play. Now, who are you? And I'm just giving a very kind of basic answer to this. Well, who are you in the realm of karma? In the realm of karma, who are you really? Uh, you are, you are, who do you perceive yourself to be? Or what do you perceive yourself to be? You perceive yourself to be the enjoyer. You're working for yourself. And in the plane of Leela, rather than being the enjoyer, one sees oneself as a servant. It's a really different idea. The center is the enjoyer. To feed the center, that is service, and to live by feeding, that's like, you know, the stomach is the enjoyer of the food. It takes it all. But the wonderful thing about it is it distributes the energy everywhere and the body is nourished. When we give to the center, we may be kind of like, well, I don't know if I want to give to anybody. But you have to understand, you're part of something here, so. You're not the hand. You are the hand, I should say. And the food shouldn't stop there. That'll be a problem if the hand says, hey, you know, why should I give to the mouth? Mouth, what do you think? I give to you, you give to the stomach. Why don't we go on a strike? I'll give to you. You give it back to me. <laughs> you feel something, but will you be nourished by that? No, you have to give to the stomach. So it, it comes with the understanding that there's a place for giving, that I'm really to give is to live, and where to give that I can live most fully. This is what Leela's about. So it's about identifying properly with the center through serving ego, having an ego of being a servant. After all, if you want to talk about love, then you, know, you really can't separate it from service because in the beginning stages, at least, we know that love is all about sacrifice. Any mother will tell you that, right? Any mothers here? So it's about sacrifice. And we should know that, philosophically speaking, in terms of spiritual life, spiritual love, it's not something you're just going to wake up tomorrow morning and be a lover of God. It's, there's going to be some sacrifice involved in that, a lot of it. So, anyway, where you'll be, you'll be in Leela rather than in Karma. You'll be a servant rather than a false enjoyer, and you'll really enjoy by giving to the center appropriately. And you'll taste sacred aesthetic rapture, we call it the rasa, rasananda. And so then this, this leela of Bhagawan, of, of Godhead, has been depicted in different ways, experienced by mystics and so forth, and it's a very interesting uh, concept. And this is one of the, one thing, in, in the, we are from the school of bhakti, so in the school of bhakti, we look at it like this, there's the plane of karma, which is inappropriate action, and then there's ceasing from inappropriate action. Karma is about taking, and when you take, you owe. So stop taking, that's one thing. Some schools say, stop taking, then you'll no longer be a taker, and then you'll be at peace. Shanti, 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 peace. Because you won't owe. You'll be peaceful. If you owe, you can never be peaceful. You've got to pay the mortgage again. So free from debt, no more exploiting, stop taking. To stop taking in our, in the bhakti school, 
is like a very abstract way of being a giver, of being a lover. If we want to talk about loving, we have to talk about stopping from taking a lot, especially if that's how we're presently oriented or predisposed. But should it stop there? Or as, again, is there anything that's similar in beyond birth and death to life that we know in the realm of karma, or is it just forever stillness? You understand what I'm saying? Life is active, so, okay, so if, if we're going to have a spiritual life, does it mean just to stop everything? Be alone? One thing about the plane of karma is we're seeing differences between one another, because you see things as black, I see them as white, and we don't, we don't agree. So we're creating these differences. The mind and senses are creating these differences. So we can say philosophically, therefore, life, love, must be about unity, right? Rather than all this difference. It's getting in the way of unity. So let me move from this disunity to unity. Let me move from taking, I'll stop taking, and see what I have in common with everyone, beneath the surface, be one with everyone, with everything. That's okay, but you want to be alone forever too? This is a very abstract idea of love. In bhakti school we go like a step further. Stop giving is one thing, that's good. But then to be a giver, is there any movement beyond birth and death? We pine for unity in a world where where difference is a problem. You know, you're Iranian, you know, and I'm an American. You're a Muslim and I'm a Hindu or Jew. It's a problem. So we pine for unity. But if you look carefully, we also pine for variety, difference. So is there any possibility that unity and difference can appear at the same time? It sounds illogical, but the land beyond birth and death is not limited by the logic of the human mind. So, we have to talk more about that. Forgive me. Stay tuned. <laughs> it's a huge topic, and it gets way more philosophical than tonight, but I'll try to keep it simple. Yes? Um, you were just talking about the center? Yeah. Have we ever been there before? Um, we're always connected to the center, but we don't, we don't know it. And as long as we don't act in terms of that, then, in a sense, we don't have the experience. We're not disconnected from the center, although we, we think that we act otherwise, but we have not that experience. I know that's kind of a yes and no answer, but <laughs> I know you a little bit, so more directly the answer is no, but not entirely no. I don't mean to say it's a foreign place. The experience of going home, if you will, spiritually speaking, sometimes we refer to it like this. Home-going requires a home-knowing person. When a home-knowing person speaks, then it hits home, we say. It touches our heart. We have to go there, then we have to follow that. that. He said that. I know that's true. I should now make that part of my life. That's going home. And as you go home, we're, you know, we're away from, we're orphans here. We're like, we have home, actually. We're not orphans. We have a home. The difference between an orphan and the son of a king who's living in the street. We have a home. We have to go there. 
So home going requires a home, a home knowing person. When that person speaks, then we can, if we listen, we want to go home, we hear it, it hits home. You know, that was true. Maybe everything you don't hear, everything you don't recognize, identify like that. But those are the things that you do, you make them part of your, your life then. Then you become equipped. That you're that much more home. Then, as you start to come close, we call smarnam. It means really kind of meditation. It, but literally the word smarnam means remembering. The experience is like, I'm going home. Like I'm going where I belong, not to a foreign place. I belong there. That's where I, where I come from. This is my, my source. So if I say, no, you've never been there, that doesn't really do justice to the, to the fact. You're never disconnected from there, in one sense. But we perceive ourselves to be. We've never experienced that we're not disconnected from that place in full consciousness. We have to experience it. The feeling is, I'm going home. And it feels like, just like that, it's very happy. It's like I'm going home after a long time. Then you cry. And everything's familiar. So much more comfortable and familiar than any place you've been, anything you've done. You're touching you first yourself, what you are, beyond this appearance, and what is your source, and how beautiful it is. Oh. Go there. <laughs> Go there. All right, so I'm very happy to meet with you again. Some of you have come so many months and some people for the first time I very much appreciate the opportunity to discuss these things with you. It's been very helpful for me. Thank you very much.